Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that you've given Jesus to die and rise again and to defeat Satan. Thank you that we know that when we trust in him, we have victory. We pray now that as we reflect on uh, the enemies of your kingdom and their strategies, that you'll help us to be holding fast to the Lord Jesus, the, the victor. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me warn you in advance, I'm about to tell a joke. <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd appreciate it if you would laugh, preferably with me and not at me and at the right time. Okay, you ready? There's a man. He's training to be a soldier. He's in line, waiting to take part in a combat training exercise. But the Sergeant Major has an announcement. He says, due to shortage of funds, we can't provide you with weapons for this exercise. All we've got is these brooms. So what you have to do is this. If you come across an enemy and you want to shoot them, you need to point your broom and say, bangy, bangy. And the other person has to pretend to die. If they get close, you want to use a bayonet, you need to thrust the broom and say, pokey, pokey. Again, the other person has to pretend to die. So they get into battle. The soldier is lying in hiding. Suddenly he sees a man walking towards him. He jumps up, he says, bangy, bangy. But the man just keeps moving towards him. Bangy, bangy, he shouts. But the man keeps coming. Finally, the man gets close. The soldier says, pokey, pokey. But the man just keeps walking. In fact, he pushes the soldier over and starts walking on top of him. And that's when the soldier hears him talking. He's saying, tanky, tanky. Tanky, tanky. <clears throat> Thanks for laughing. <clears throat> the point of the joke... <clears throat> the point of the joke is this. You need to know what you're up against. If you don't know what you're up against, you won't know how to fight. As Christians, we're in a war. It's not an even war. It's a war in one sense that's already been won. But nevertheless, we're in a war. On the one side, there is God. God is at work in this world establishing a kingdom. He's given Jesus to die and rise again. Now he commands everyone to submit to Jesus as their king and come into his kingdom. When we submit to Jesus, we are pardoned forgiven for all our sin, and we are allowed to become part of his kingdom, part of his people, under his rule, under his blessing. And we look forward to being with God face to face in the new heaven and the new earth. God is establishing his kingdom. He's working to have his people in his place, under his rule and his blessing. That's, that's one side in this war. On the other side, there are enemies opposed to God's plan. The devil and his forces hate God. They want to keep people out of God's kingdom. They don't want people to trust in Jesus. Now, not many people today believe in the devil or demons, do they? Including many Christians. And even if we don't, even if we don't actually deny the existence of devils and demons, I suspect we often live as if they didn't exist. We practically don't believe in them. 
Or maybe we've got a, a picture in our heads of uh, some guy in red tights with a pitchfork or something like that. We don't, we don't take the devil seriously. We've got a caricature in, in our minds. But the Bible is very clear that we're wrong. The Bible is clear that there is such a thing as the devil and demons and spiritual powers. And in the Bible, they're no laughing matter. They are enemies of God's kingdom. We're wrong about the devil. And the problem is this. We've forgotten what we're up against. The Bible says, I've put it there on your outline, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We're told to be self-controlled and alert. Not terrified, but self-controlled, alert. Mindful of the danger of the devil. But it seems to me we often forget there even is a devil. And we've got no real idea of what he's doing, how he's at work. We don't know anything about his strategies. We don't know what we're up against. And so there's a sense in which we can be vulnerable. In the book of Nehemiah, we are dealing with the establishment of God's kingdom. It's not God's full and final kingdom that we know in Jesus, but it's related. It's like a model or a picture or a shadow of God's kingdom, his ultimate kingdom in Jesus. In Nehemiah, we see God's people, the people of Israel. We see that they are in God's place, in Jerusalem, in the promised land. And we see that God is establishing them so that they will live under his blessing and his rule. That's part of what this wall is all about, establishing Israel in the kingdom of God. And in Nehemiah, we've also seen that there are enemies at work, at work trying to undermine God's kingdom, trying to stop God's people from being in his place under his rule. And that is again what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 6 to 7. In Nehemiah 6 to 7, the wall around Jerusalem is nearly finished. This wall that will give permanence and security in the land. And we see Israel's enemies at work. We see three sneaky strategies that the enemies use to undermine what's happening. The first strategy comes in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 6. Israel's enemies are worried that the wall is nearly built. They can see Nehemiah is really getting things together and so they come up with a plot to assassinate him. They try to get him to meet up with them in the northern border of Judah, Judah, sort of in a dark alley somewhere, and there they plan to bump him off. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Honor. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and, and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. When the direct approach doesn't work, the enemies try a different way to get Nehemiah into their clutches. They write a letter claiming that Nehemiah is starting a rebellion. And again, I don't know how the logic works, but they, they, they say, well, come and meet with us. Um, but of course, the plan is just to assassinate him. Again, though, Nehemiah doesn't fall for it. He just works even harder to get the wall finished. Verse 5. 
Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter, in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are planning, plotting to revolt, and therefore you're rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Well, that's scheme number one thwarted, the violent assassination attempt. The enemies aren't finished, though. They've got strategy number two. This time they try to trip Nehemiah up with some false religion. They hire some false prophets and they get them to try to intimidate Nehemiah. The first guy, the first prophet, is a guy called Shemaiah. And he tries to get Nehemiah to sin by, by going and hiding in the temple. And Nehemiah, as a layperson, is not allowed into the temple to grasp hold of the altars, except uh, in a couple of specific circumstances in God's law. If it's been an accidental murder, then he can go and grasp onto the altar for uh, sanctuary. But of course, this is not that circumstance. And also, there's the fact that if he runs away and hides, he's going to lose face in front of all the people who are working so bravely to build the wall. So there's this prophet who brings a false prophecy to try to trick him. Verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realised that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And Nehemiah prays again. And this time as he prays, he mentions that Shemaiah is not the only prophet who's been involved in this intimidation. There's other, other prophets, also a prophetess called Noadiah, all no doubt mixed up with Israel's enemies. Verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, am I God, because of what they've done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to intimidate me. Well, there was the violent assassination attempt. There was the false prophets attempt. Two strategies have failed so far, and in the next verses we see the wall gets completed in amazingly fast time, and we see that it is a real blow. It's a, it's a blow in the guts to, uh, to, to Israel's enemies, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. Seems like the enemies have failed, doesn't it? The wall is built. God's kingdom is established. But beware when you think you stand, lest you fall, because the enemies aren't finished yet. And... Uh, Instead, Tobiah begins what I think is the trickiest strategy of all. He tries to insinuate himself in Israel. He tries to infiltrate Israel and get them to compromise with him. He starts up a whole series of letters 
with, uh, with the Jews, gets into all sorts of business dealings with them, gets them under oath to him, owing him money and all that kind of thing. He marries a Jewish girl, he gets a Jewish girl for his son, and he uses his family connections to try to get to Nehemiah. He gets the Jewish in-laws to go to Nehemiah and say, oh, that Tobiah, once you get to know him, he's actually a really good guy. You should, you know, you should work harder at being friends with him. And he makes sure that, uh, that whatever Nehemiah says gets straight back to him as well. Verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. But Nehemiah won't compromise. He's not going to let anybody into this city, and so he appoints trustworthy men, uncompromised men, who will look after the city. He makes sure that the gates are opened late and closed early. He makes sure that Jerusalem is properly guarded, chapter 7 and verse 1. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother, Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be open until the sun is hot. And while the gatekeepers are still on duty, make them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Nehemiah doesn't want compromise with Tobiah. He doesn't want him getting his, his fingers into Jerusalem. But there's one more sneaky plot. There's one more way that Tobiah can infiltrate Jerusalem. Now, the problem is Jerusalem's now got nice walls built, but there's hardly anybody living inside the city. And most people are out on farms, scratching out an existence as best they can. Not many people can afford to come and live in a city. An economy like that hasn't been developed yet. And if they want to live in Jerusalem, they'll have to rebuild their house because most of the place is still in ruins. Jerusalem is empty. And that gives Tobiah and his cohorts one more chance. If they can go and live in Jerusalem, well, they've defeated the whole purpose of the walls, haven't they? What's the point of having walls to keep your enemies out when they live inside the walls with you? It's all part of this strategy. They want to try to infiltrate Jerusalem, get in among them, get them compromised. And so Nehemiah decides he needs to register all the Jews. He needs to write down who they are and he needs to make sure they are Jewish. And as he does it, he comes across an old document. A document that we've actually seen before, back in Ezra chapter 2. It's the document that lists who were the people of Israel who came down from Persia. It's a document that lists who among those people could prove that they were proper Jews. Verse 4 of chapter 7. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who'd been the first to return. This is what I found written there. And then we get this list that we've already seen in Ezra chapter 2. Halfway through verse 7, you can see the men of Israel are listed. See that there? Verse 39, you can see the priests. Verse 43, the Levites. And then in verse 61, you've got those people who can't prove that they're Jewish. 
Verse 61. The following came up from the towns of Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Karub, Adon, and Imma. But they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. The descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, it's a different Tobiah, don't know if they're related though, and Nakoda, 642. And from among the priests, the descendants of Habiah, Hakoz, and Barzillai, a man had married a daughter of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. That's a vital find for Nehemiah, this old historical document, because now he's got the historical records to help him. Now he can prove who the real Jews are. And so he can stop Tobiah and his allies, these, these outsiders, from infiltrating Jerusalem. And so, hopefully, that's the third strategy thwarted, the strategy of compromise and infiltration. Hopefully that is Israel, now established in the land. Hopefully that is God's kingdom, set on firm foundations. God's people are in God's place. They're under the blessing and rule of God. The wall is up. The question now is, will they live as God's people? Will they obey God's law? But for that, you will need to stay tuned for the next exciting episodes of Nehemiah. For now, for now we need to reflect on these enemy strategies. Because like Israel, God is establishing us in his kingdom. We're part of a similar struggle, a similar struggle to what's going on here in Nehemiah. God was establishing his kingdom in Israel he was establishing his people in his place under his rule. And now through Jesus, God is establishing us in his ultimate kingdom, the kingdom of which Israel was just a shadow. Through Jesus, God is establishing us in the new heaven and new earth under his blessing and rule. And there are still enemies. The devil and his minions are opposed to God's kingdom, just like Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem were, in fact, in fact, I would argue that it is the same devil behind the work of Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem opposing God's kingdom. There were enemies to God's kingdom in Nehemiah's day and there are still enemies to God's kingdom in Jesus. And the thing is this. When I look at the New Testament, I don't think the enemies of God's kingdom have changed strategies at all. Remember the three things that Israel's enemies do in Nehemiah? Strategy number one, they try violence. They try to assassinate Nehemiah. Strategy number two, they try false religion. They hire those false prophets to, get to, to trick Nehemiah. And then strategy number three, when all of that fails, they then just gently infiltrate and get Israel to compromise with them. Be fascinating when you go home to read right through Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in full. We just got three of the seven letters. But, but there in Revelation 2 to 3, there are seven letters written to churches by Jesus. Jesus writes the letter and he warns them about the devil's attacks. And if you read through it in full, you will see that the devil uses exactly the same strategies then and today as the enemies did in Nehemiah. Now first, there's the violent persecution strategy. We see that in a number of the churches in Revelation 2-3. to uh, You saw this church in Smyrna this morning in the second reading. They were told the devil would put some of them in prison. They were told they needed to be faithful even to the point of death. Or there was Pergamum, the city we're told where Satan lives. Members of the church there were even killed for being Christians. Satan uses persecution to oppose God's people. 
to stop us being Christian, to get us to stop talking to, about Jesus to other people so they can be Christian. And it's happening today, isn't it? We might see it on a small scale here, <clears throat> but we heard the prayer about Afghanistan this morning. You see it in a very large scale in many countries, Muslim countries, communist countries. There are many, many countries, millions upon millions of people who live in countries where Christians face terrible persecution. And the point is this, it's not just a human thing. It's not just cranky people who've got political ideologies. Behind it is the work of the devil. Or second, there's the false prophet strategy. Satan uses false teaching to oppose God's kingdom. You see that also in a number of the churches in Revelation. Uh, there are false apostles trying to infiltrate the church in Ephesus. Uh, this morning we heard about the Nicolaitans, or that false teacher in Pergamum who was encouraging Christians to join in pagan idolatry and immorality. There was another false prophetess in Thyatira doing the same stuff. The devil uses false teaching to get us to stop believing the true message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, according to the scriptures alone. And it's still happening today. There are other religions. They're not just nice people trying to find God, other religions. Behind them is the work of the devil. Well, there are all kinds of perversions of the gospel. Some false teachings subtract from the gospel. They say, oh, Jesus is not really our Lord and Saviour. He didn't really die and rise again from the dead. He hasn't really paid for our sins. They subtract from the gospel. Well, then you've got those false teachings that add to the gospel. They say, yeah, yeah, Jesus is good, but you've got to trust in him and do lots of good works or and get baptised in a certain way. Or you have to put your trust in Jesus and be Jewish or Calathumpian or something. Some add to the gospel, some subtract from the gospel, or you've just got those teachings that distract from the gospel. They, they sort of assume that the gospel is true and then go on to new things like religious traditions or rituals or liturgies or miracles or prosperity or a myriad of other things. There are all kinds of false teachings around. And again, it's not just a question if someone hasn't got their academic qualifications straight. Behind them all is the work of the devil. Or there's the third tactic. Compromise, infiltration. In Revelation, there was the church in Ephesus. And if you look at it, it's just a picture of what happens to Israel in Nehemiah 6 and 7. Because the devil tries persecution and fails. He tries false teaching, false apostles and fails. And then he gets them. Because they lose their first love, it says. They compromise and lose their passion for Jesus. They're so orthodox and so hard-nosed after facing all this persecution that they just compromise and lose their love. Well, there was the church in Sardis that had all the right religious forms and had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus said they were spiritually dead, compromised. Well, there was the classic that Dave read for us, the Laodicean church. They were so rich... So comfortable in their North Shore houses in Laodicea, they forgot they even needed a saviour. They were lukewarm about Jesus. They thought they had it all already. Again, they compromised. They lost their passion. They were infiltrated. That one's certainly still true today, isn't it? 
In fact, do you think it might be true here? Are we so rich and comfortable that we've forgotten we need Jesus? Are we sitting in our nice houses with our nice hot water thinking, who needs heaven? We're here. Have we allowed greed and materialism to infiltrate our lives so that we are no different to the people around us? Have we allowed sexual immorality into our lives with TV or the computer? Are we lukewarm? Have we lost our first love? Has that passion just faded away as the devil has slipped in? Do we look like we're alive on the outside, but, but inside we're, we're spiritually dead? Has the devil infiltrated Chatswood Presbyterian? See, if we don't believe he exists, we're not even going to try to find out, are we? As Christians, we will face persecution in various forms. We will hear false teaching. We will be tempted to compromise. And in all these things, we need to realise what it is we are up against. We are wrong if we think that persecution and false teaching and temptation to compromise are just human things. These things are the work of the devil. And once we realise what we're up against, we need to use the right weapons. There is no point fighting violence with violence, as happens so often and seems to be happening in some places in Indonesia. There's no point only dealing with false teaching by thinking it's an interesting argument and then coming up with an interesting academical cross-argument. There's no point dealing with our compromise by just, well, I'll just try harder and write myself a list of rules and make some New Year's resolutions. These things may or may not be appropriate responses in themselves, but they're not enough. Because this battle is more than a human battle. And so we need more than human weapons. This is a spiritual war, and so we need spiritual weapons. And of course the Bible tells us what those are, doesn't it? It's nothing particularly new to you, I'm sure, but we need to stick with God's Spirit-inspired Word. Always check out what we hear against what God says in, in his Bible. We need to be committed to prayer. It might not seem like you're doing much when you pray, but that's because you're thinking humanly. In this spiritual war, prayer is our lifeline. Above all, we need to stand firm in our faith in Jesus. We need to stick with him because he is the one who has defeated the devil at the cross. If we are with him, we cannot fall into the hands of the devil. On your outline there, I've put the next part of that passage I gave you from Peter at the beginning, where he warns us about the devil being like a roaring lion. He doesn't say panic. He doesn't say have a big exorcism service. He just says this, resist him, standing firm in the faith. The enemy of God's kingdom hasn't changed his tactics since the days of Nehemiah. And I guess why would you when they are so successful, so effective? But we can't afford to be tricked by Satan's strategies. We can't afford to think of him as some caricature in red tights with a pitchfork. What he is on about is giving, getting us to give up on Jesus. He doesn't want us permanently established in God's kingdom. And he'll use those same tactics we saw in Nehemiah. He'll use persecution. He'll use false teaching. He'll tempt us to compromise. And so as we face any or all of these things, we need to remember what we're up against. And we need to use those spiritual weapons 
prayerfully rely on the Jesus of the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that we are not defenceless in this spiritual war. Thank you that you have won the great victory, that you are establishing your kingdom, that you have given Jesus to die and rise again so that Satan cannot touch us when we rely on him. Our Father, do please help us to be able to withstand whatever comes our way, whether it be persecution or false teaching or the temptation to compromise. Help us to withstand it by being diligent, meditative reflectors on your word. Help us to be devoted to prayer. Help us to stand firm, always trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ who has the victory. And we ask you these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.